This is the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your host, Stephen Michael. All right, Growing Up Rock listeners, it's time for another week, and my partner in crime, Hollywood Pooney, has decided to take a little bit of break, but don't worry, I'm here to fill in the gap, and I've invited a friend of mine from the old days to talk Atlanta rock and roll back in the day. With me today is Dan Call. What's up, Daniel? Oh, Steve, it's so good to be here. Finally, someone's going to listen to my story. So this should be fun, man. We got a lot to talk about. You've been in and around the music business now for how many years? Because uh, you never really left it. Uh, at least almost 30 years now. Yeah. yeah. This is going to be killer, man. We're going to play some music. We're going to talk about the old days and uh, just generally have a kick-ass time. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. All right. Well, before we get into that, we need to do a little bit of house cleaning. Miss Samantha. Everyone's got a rock and roll story to tell, and we want to hear yours. So go to our website at growinguprock.com. That's one word, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K dot com. Or visit us on our Facebook page at Growing Up Rock and tell us all about it. Just like the lovely and talented Samantha said, everybody's got a rock and roll story to tell, and we will cover the grown-ups of the week next week when Hollywood is back. But until then, you know what time it is. It's time to... It's time for the Crank It Up New Music Spotlight. All right, the Crank It Up New Music Spotlight. So this week, we got a band from Paris Records. Paris Records sent me a new album from a band called Acacia Avenue. Now, you would think Acacia Avenue, like the 22 Acacia Avenue Iron Maiden? Yeah, not so much. That's kind of what I thought, but not anything like that. If you're into Journey uh, and the guitar-driven Journey, the band Giant, maybe some Dokken, then this band's kind of for you. They're kind of really melodic, hard rock, pretty good sounding record, actually. Uh, the name of the record is called Worlds Apart, and we are going to play this first single for you. So enjoy Stand Up and Shout. This is Torbenino Austin from Acacia Avenue, and you're listening to the Growing Up Rock Podcast with Steven and Hollywood. Crank that shit up!
So hopefully you dug that song, Stand Up and Shout, off of Acacia Avenue's Worlds Apart record. If you dig that tune, you'll probably dig the record. The rest of the stuff is similar to that. I mean, it's along those same lines. There's a couple of ballads on there, but pretty straight ahead, melodic hard rock for you guys. All right? Awesome. All right, so let's get into this conversation with Dan. Dan, let's shoot the shit about the old days, dude. Man, there was some good ones. There was some bad ones, but there was some good ones. Yes. Let's pick it up with, first of all, kind of how we know each other. Yeah. So you and I met each other, I think, probably the late 80s, right? Uh, actually, it was late 1989. And I can tell you the story to remind you if you need it. I know some of the old stuff. So yeah. I, I know that I had been in Atlanta for probably just over a year in yeah. that. I just moved from Florida. I lived here in Atlanta. And 
I'd worked with some local bands down in Florida, so I was already hardcore into rock and roll, but I, I knew that I didn't have the talent to be a musician myself, even though I messed around. Oh, don't around. sell yourself short. Dude, whatever. I'm, yeah. I'm totally clear on that. <laughs> so, I, so I knew that the only way I was going to make it was the behind-the-scenes kind of guy, and uh, yeah. I had a definite opinion about how bands should present themselves, and I think... I think as the story goes, I saw you guys in a club and walked up and presented my opinion straight to you. Is uh, that about right? Uh, yeah, it was a uh, yeah, it was the, I, I don't even remember the name of the club. I know it was in Stone Mountain, Georgia. Yeah, and you came up and just said, "Hey, man, you know, I think I can help you guys." And we hoped you were going to give us a hundred bucks because we were all so broke. But you know what you were <laughs> talking about was uh, managing, and uh, and you did a. A fine job, considering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the name of the band back then was Big Trouble, mm -hmm. right, from yeah. the get-go. Yeah. Uh, and it was your standard hard rock, long hair, pretty boy, rock and roll band that you would expect from 1989. Yeah, I mean, we all loved, you know, our core love was Van Halen. So, of course, yeah. you know, we were trying to uh, emulate that to a certain degree. But it was cool, and we did, you know, for – for how everything, how clogged everything was, you know, I think we did good, and you were definitely a big part of that. Uh, I don't think we would, we definitely would have not gotten as far as we did if you hadn't been there. Yeah, we made some headway on the Atlanta music scene. I mean, we had a lot of good times. The band at the time, I think, had a. Um, uh, well, you guys all lived in the same house. Oh yeah, oh. I mean the, the party house. Yeah, it was. Uh, Wow, what an experience. The neighbors were scared. You know, it was exactly what you would think it would be. You know, four idiots who didn't know, you know, the only thing we were was drunk and horny and uh, thinking that we were making good music. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's funny because about five years ago, as you know, I went back in and took the tapes we made back in the day. Yeah. And, you know, re-edited, redid it. Basically, did what we always wished we could have gotten if we had the money to have somebody come in and do it yeah and repurposed it and put it out on a label and then i called you and you, you wrote the forward for it and put it out and it ended up selling almost a thousand copies and we went and played rocklahoma so i mean a lot of people from the day want to act like that that time never happened because they're always thinking they're reinventing it that was the most energy of any group of musicians i've ever played with and i played with some great ones and that energy will never have that again and i thought it important to yeah i mean listen i thought it was as good as anything that was happening at the time you know i mean it's all about timing and and who you know and mm -hmm. uh you know just didn't work out didn't have the clout whatever but still a good collection of tunes oh is yeah there, is there something we should play for the listeners yeah from the reissue i would go with the, the one that you know always kind of stuck with everybody you might get lucky you know the name of the record is a uh, 20 years and a million beers ago and that came out about five years ago on uh, retrospect records and uh it still sounds good man all right so we're gonna go with you might get lucky yes sir Thought my dreams had come true I was so in love with you 
Both of us. Uh, Why are we both sweating right now? Uh, because we're old. <laughs> <laughs> After hearing that. Woo. Yeah, man. Yeah, that's a trip back to 1989. Oh, yeah, dude. I still love it. But, you know, you guys were able to do stuff mm-hmm. like that, you know, and you were pretty young back then. Oh, God, we're right out of high school. I mean, we were all a lot younger back then. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. That was cool. I don't think I know this story, but how is it that you ended up getting into music and rock and roll and playing bass? You know, how did that all come about for you? Oh, man, it's a long story. I don't want to bore everybody to death, but just to summarize, my dad took me to see Kiss and uh, Cheap Trick when I was in the third, second or third grade. What tour was that? Do you uh, remember? Rock and Roll Over. Really? Yeah. That was so 1977, I think. Okay. Yeah. And it scared the hell out of me, but it was also, uh, it really made an impression, as you can imagine, as it did with a lot of people. And um, it always just kind of stuck with me. It started the fascination of it. So, I, of course, I was listening to Kiss Records, but I was also listening to you know, Cheap Trick and The Dictators and all these other things. And once I got into high school, I mean, I took guitar lessons, but that really wasn't my thing. And got into high school and still loved music. And a group of upperclassmen had a band, but their singer was just not that good. And uh, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go practice for like about three months and just see if I can just get that gig just to do anything, you know, and uh, ended up getting the gig. And to this day, What's funny enough is the drummer, Tom Knight, he's now, he was the president of the Atlanta Arts Institute, but he, you would know him from um, TLC. He played uh, drums on their monster hit. I can't think of the name of it. Waterfalls. Well, yes. Okay. And Bobby Lee Rogers, who's part of uh, the Bobby Lee Rogers trio. They do very well. It's very, you know, fish. They do all the festivals and stuff. And that was that band. The first time I had to sing in front of anybody, I I couldn't do it. And I knew I I was better than the bass player. So then I just sat down and went in with a rush record. I think I learned moving pictures from front end to back and came in a month later and they were like, okay, we're moving you to bass. And so that's what started that motion, started playing gigs, you know. I remember seeing some sort of video not too long ago. Somebody posted it of, was it of you and some old bandmates or friends doing yyz or something oh god yeah 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 yeah. we used to it's funny because in high school we were all in jazz band yeah yeah and i couldn't read music at all but we the band director was a real big jazz guy and a big influence on all of us our rock band was playing the bonfire for a football game because i played football too right and we were playing like panama and you know van halen tunes and he came out was like you need to be in jazz band and and because Tom already was. And so he would let us at lunchtime during the periods, if we would be in jazz band, he would let us play rock at lunch and all the kids would come in. And so we were literally playing every day, you know, right. playing journey songs, Led Zeppelin songs, Van Halen songs, Rush. And it seemed so funny at the time because, I mean, we were doing YYZ and things like that with the drum solo, the live version, and we didn't think anything about it. Yeah. But looking back on it, I was like, there's not many bands that could have pulled that off when they were 15, 16 years old. Right. And uh, so, yeah, that video, <laughs> we were talking about a blast in the past, and it sounded good. Yeah, it did. It I sounded mean, really good. I was like, wow, I need to get some of that energy back. I was like, look at that. Dan Call can play bass. I can actually play. Holy shit. Not just a pretty face, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. All right. So, cool. So, what band or what, you know, song from that era of your life was important to you? Was there anything that you were really drawn to band-wise? I mean, we talked about being Kiss fans and, yeah. and Van Halen fans, but was there anything in particular that just kind of flipped the switch for you? That- you know, it's the first, when we moved to Atlanta from where I was from in Tennessee, yeah. the first record that I ever bought in Atlanta was Dream Police. Really? And I 
wore the grooves out on that record. So yeah, I would if, if I would say the first thing that really hit me in a mature sort of way, like the songs, yeah, was that record. Do you have a song off that record in particular you want to play, or oh. you just want me to play my choice? Man, you could play any. It doesn't matter. It's all. It's one big masterpiece. Let's my play one off a of Cheap Tricks, Dream Police. Classic from Cheap Trick. Still sounds fresh. Still sounds great, man. Oh, I saw them recently uh, open up for Poison, and uh, they were fantastic, oh, man. man. Yes. Robin Zander sounded so damn good. I saw them uh, last year with uh, Jason Bonham 
Yeah. Led Zeppelin. And uh, I forgot who the headliner was. That's how. Oh, Foreigner. I saw that same show. Yeah. 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 And Robin Zandt, you're just like, that is a rock star. Did you see him at Chastain? No, no. It was, oh. I saw him in Florida. Oh, uh, okay. yeah. 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 Awesome. It. Yeah. No doubt. No wow. doubt. Okay. So back to where we were. Yeah. So in 89, you're in big trouble. We're putting together music. Yeah. And I come in as quote unquote the manager the manager (laughs) (laughs) making bad music more heard since 1989 yeah so we had some good success we ended up getting some really good opening slots absolutely remember any of those uh, bands we opened up with i know we opened up for bullet boys and the scream the scream we opened up for trickster yeah we opened up for Oh, God. Jackal. We opened up for Extreme. Yeah. South Gang. South Gang. Yeah. God, there was so many. There was, uh, remember, King of the Hill. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. The Blondes. There was uh, there was a lot. Oh, uh, not LA Guns, but it was another band. Like, Sweet F.A. <laughs> I um, forgot about them. Yeah. There was uh, a lot of the, not even one, uh, XYZ. Yeah, yeah. A lot of those bands that were coming through at the Cotton Club back yep. at the time. Yeah. Uh, it was fantastic time. Yes, it was. So you remember any stories that we need to share with the bunch about <sighs> the band house days? Well, the, you know, look, it was <laughs> there was a lot of keg parties. Yeah. Lots of keg parties every Friday and Saturday yeah. night, it seemed like. Um, lots of pretty girls. And, you know, it was just a lot. Of, there was a, there was a lot of innocence. And it's funny that looking back on it now, I mean, Look, of course, there were stories, but they're not going to match, you know, Motley Crue's band no, stories. No, this was local. This shit. was local. So, but I will say this: there's a tune on that Big Trouble record, Twenty Years and a Million Beers Ago, that we actually came back together as a band and recorded for the record, and it's called Popcorn Whiskey and Beer. <laughs> yeah. And that is a direct because my mom at the time was in uh in in sales and part of the sales thing but these packages of popcorn and yeah. so we had a garage full that she had left there i remember that and i mean you couldn't if you had long hair then man you couldn't get a job nah. you know and there would be days where we would just be eating popcorn beer and whiskey, anything but, we could get our hands on. But we all had jobs. I know I did. You guys had jobs. You too. had a proper job. You, yeah. you actually lived in a decent apartment. Yeah, yeah. You know, you you were living. You were in between worlds. Yeah. You know. Yeah, we had jobs, but they weren't good ones. That, you know, we weren't responsible. No musician has a no. good job. And so you know, <laughs> you, you did what you had to do to survive. Yeah. And uh, but those, the stories are endless. And look, it was exactly what you think. Four guys right out of high school on their own for the first time you know what i don't remember us ever doing and i'm a little bit surprised looking back on it because you hear the stories about uh van halen and and them being like the biggest backyard barbecue band in pasadena and all that stuff but Mm -hmm. i don't remember us ever doing any like playing parties like where we were playing at the band house and charging five bucks for uh, a keg you know what i mean well there wasn't really there just wasn't no, nobody had the facility to be, to be able to do it. You know, the Van Halen stuff, they were going to uh, friends, rich parents' homes right. in Pasadena where there's plenty of land and, and doing the stuff there. And plus, you know, remember this, bands like Van Halen at that time, they were four-set cover bands. Yeah. yeah. this We weren't. I mean, this was a local scene where you played original music. That's right. Till the, til the end. Till the end. Till the end. Then we started trying to make a little bit of money to fund our 
our records and oh, uh, things yeah. like that. And by then it was just, it, it was over and it nobody was. was, you know, but that's okay. You know, it was a great learning experience. It was, yeah. uh, and a lot of that stuff stuck with me till today. Yeah, no doubt. You know, I try to zone in every once in a while on some of the stories and some of the thoughts. And oddly enough, I, I remember the one story that sticks with me is is going to uh, Masquerade one night. And I want to say that we went there to see the back doors or something like that. Oh, and James yeah. met me there and I got hammered yeah. and I was drunk and passed out on the freaking ledge. <laughs> yeah, I think I remember that. The ledge of the masquerade. <laughs> and, and he had to get me, he took me back to the band house, I think. Oh yeah. That was one of the few occasions James was our singer in uh, big trouble. Yeah. And I play with him still in the villains. And he was probably at that point about the least responsible of the four of us. And that's saying a lot. So the fact that he got you home is a miracle. Um, but yeah, he uh, it, that was a. I remember that now. Yeah, he was responsible that night. That we, night, we got we got home safely. Yeah, there must not have been girls involved. Had there been girls involved, you'd probably still be asleep there right now. Probably yeah. so. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, so so King King James, as yes. we referred to him, was of course the good-looking David Lee Roth type front man. He didn't look like Dave. Didn't have the blonde hair. He had the brown black hair or whatever but he he moved and shaked like dave yeah. did back in the day oh yeah I mean, he, he he shook it and man he never broke it i gotta tell you that he he got out there and did his thing and it was cool man and everybody did you know yeah. that was the fun part you know the gigs were always the fun part obviously um even when they didn't go good you know you learn something I, and i remember that you'll remember this story we were opening for the Blondes mm -hmm. at Variety Playhouse. Yeah, I remember that. And there was another band on the bill. It yep. was a kind of a Black Crows-ish type thing at the time called Rock and Bones. Yeah, yep, that's we, right. And we thought that we were going to be in the middle slot right before the Blondes, and so did Rock and Bones. And I'll never forget, we got to the gig, and you're like, and you went up to Sean, who is now a friend, who I wrote, co-wrote popcorn whiskey and beer with right. and he was the singer in rock and bones and you're like what are you doing setting up your gear they're like we're in the middle slot and you're like no you're not and he started cussing at you and you started cussing at him and then the blondes manager danny hamilton had to come here and break you guys apart yeah and uh it was like now this is rock and roll and we still went on first Way to go, manager. <laughs> <laughs> Did we really? Because yeah. I don't remember the outcome. I just remember that we were we were friends with the Blondes. Yeah. And I don't know. How did those guys end up? Because they the had opened for the Black Crows. They did two, the Black Crows did two nights at Center Stage and the Rock and Bones. You know, the press liked them because they were basically ripping much off. About them. They weren't hair metal. Yeah. They really didn't have any business on the bill. But And that's, that's really the thing. And... But you know what? We went out there and kicked their ass. That we didn't leave them a stage to play on. Well, I, I tell this story every so often, but I remember seeing Mr. Crow's garden open up for the blondes that were opening up for meatloaf. Yeah, at the Cotton, at the Cotton Club. Club. Yeah, remember that show? I, I didn't. I wasn't there. That now that was about a year before I could even get into clubs. Like when we were doing Big Trouble. Yeah, remember. It wasn't until about a year into it that I was the first one that turned 21. I don't remember us ever, ever having any problems. No, because, I mean, you know, what are you going to do? Not let the band play? Yeah. I mean, you know, we just kind of kept it. So, so yeah, but no, I, those days, I remember I saw the uh, Mr. Black Crows, what became them at a place called the uh, 
white dot used yep. to be down on Ponce and uh, it's just awful. It sounded terrible. But I didn't particularly think that they were that good when they opened up for the blondes and meatloaf. They sure got back at us. <laughs> yeah. The joke's on us. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. yeah. I think they still were probably just discovering themselves and figuring out what they were going to be. But, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, listen, I think the Atlanta music scene back then, late 89, 90, I think was in pretty good shape, really, as far as hard rock goes, because there were a lot of, a lot of faces and a lot of names that you know, would eventually go on and do things. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. you and I were both friends with a lot of those folks. And, oh, yeah. And all this, there was a lot of band, you know, camaraderie at the time. I mean, we yeah. hung out a lot of times. There was the friendly competition thing like there would yeah. be I on mean, any were, scene, but yeah. we were friends with a lot of folks. Oh, yeah. A lot of good, a lot of good, talented people that are still talented today. They may not be doing music, but you know, you, you talk about the acts that came out of that time and you're talking about the very tier end of, of hair metal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it was a uh, Jackal uh -huh. and Butch Walker's band South gang. Right. And who I've went on to work with post all the hair metal stuff. I mean, they're, you know, Jesse from Jackal, they mm -hmm. still tour. Mm -hmm. He still makes records out of his place. And Kennesaw Butch has went on to become a, a, a solid producer and had some success with that. And, if the fire burns, you find a way. Yeah. You know? And so the people that were around there, those guys uh, in Seven Dust, man, they were in a hair metal band called Stiff Kitty. Right. You remember? Yeah. And so, you know, if the fire burns, it keeps going. So there's a lot of people still around from that time. Well, so Seven Dust, Seven Dust, which was part Stiff Kitty, but also the cover band from Charlie Magruder oh, still reigns. Yeah, yeah, Right? Yeah, that yeah, was the yeah. other portion of yeah. uh, what is yeah. Seven Dust today. Oh, yeah. And I remember um, I got called by, and I don't remember his name, you and I both know him, but somebody had me go out and see um, whatever LeJohn's band was. It was not Seven Dust, I don't think, at the time, but it was LeJohn and somebody else, and I went out to see them. Mm -hmm. And what is that guy's name? I'm sorry, but I can't remember. He's in a band with somebody, and hmm. uh, I remember LeJohn getting in a fight with his girlfriend that night oh, like his God. girlfriend was a hundred percent pissed off at him and this big fight ensued and uh, uh yeah you know the glory I, days yeah i just didn't i didn't think whatever i saw that night i didn't didn't think was that great it wasn't anything like seven dust what would become seven dust or anything yeah. like that you know it was just not my thing but there were a lot of a lot of bands and a lot of talent on that music scene at that Absolutely. particular time it was as, it was as competitive as anything else look i mean it, but we're not la yeah you know we're not new york yeah. so we were we were always behind the curveball but that didn't mean good stuff didn't come out and you know we actually had what they don't have now and that is a music scene yeah so you know it depends on the way you're looking at it yeah so after that, that's kind of after the big trouble days in the early 90s, it became like 92. I left Atlanta to go on the road. I started doing tours and things like that with different people. So I kind of lost contact mm -hmm. with a lot of you guys. What kind of happened during that time? Well, post big trouble, you know, I mean, obviously it was, everything was changing into grunge. Yep. And, you know, and there was a lot of that music that affected us and we experimented with it. Did you ever like any of that stuff? No. I, I, I tell you, it's funny because everybody was always like Pearl Jam. And I mean, 
look, those Nirvana records are great records. Right. But I always liked when Stone Temple Pilots came out, it, they, it was like, oh, they're just a Pearl Jam ripoff. Well, they may have been, but I still listen to those records now. So there was, it just depended on what it was. Did I love it? No. Did I, did it connect with me? No, not really. And that's why it, it didn't work for us. Yeah. You know, and a lot of you kiss made carnival of souls. Go and listen to that bunch of rich guys writing about how, how terrible life is. No wonder they did the reunion tours. That, that record was so bad, but <laughs> I still think it had some good songs on it. Yeah. Well, you're being kind. <laughs> that being said, well, it's just ridiculous. It's like a football player wearing a tutu. A lot of the Kiss uh, bands uh, hate that record. Yeah. It just, you know, but it, the point being is that a lot of people experimented with it. It didn't really work for us. And we moved on and went kind of back to rock. Yeah. And around 97, 98 with a band called Star Yard. Yeah. And long story short, you know, we played the clubs around. We were open for like the outfield and Ted Nugent and all this stuff and got a development deal with RCA and um, did some demos and, and got real close with that. And it just kind of didn't work out. And, you know, that's when everybody kind of started doing things that you know, you're trying anything. You don't want to ever be desperate. But right. and then a year later, Speaking of the Black Crows, Johnny Colt, the bass player from the Black Crows, had just left them. The original bass player, yeah. Yeah, and he ended up wanting to work with us and Brennan O'Brien's right-hand guy, Nick Tadia. Yeah. And so we went in as Star Yard and did a couple of songs with them that were really, was really, really strong. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we were still finding our way and learning stuff, and um, that's how you grow. Post that, that kind of fizzled out once the development deal. And we went and worked with Jesse from Jackal on a couple of tunes. And, and we, you know, we basically kind of exhausted, you know, everything. And I think by that point, you know, you're looking at 10 years together through three different genres and you're just kind of, uh, you know. Um, and then we crashed into the 2000s or I crashed into the 2000s. I don't know about everybody else, but. So you don't want to play anything from the Star Yard record? I mean, we can. The, yeah. There's the tune that got us the development deal. Yeah. If you want to play that, it's not available anywhere. I mean, I hate for, you know, I'd, I might put it out in the future. I'd like to remix it, but yeah. there's a tune called Mary's Frown that always, that was the tune that got us the development deal. That's what brought everybody to shows. So we can play that. All right, let's play it. Let's let's let people hear it yeah. because we talked about it. We might as well let people hear it. Get ready to get trippy, people. All right, Mary's frown from Star Yard.
There you go. Wow. <laughs> Trip think? to the past. Yeah, you know what though? That that was uh it was experimental. We had a great time making that record. We that was like our first real professional twenty four track like let's yeah, you know. I remember you guys recording that record. I was on the road at the time, yeah. but I remember stopping by some of the recording sessions. Yeah, and it was cool. We had a good time, and we learned a lot. And that's the thing, you know. I mean, a lot of the times, especially songwriting wise, you know, you know, it's not like it was in the '60s, like with the Stones and the Beatles. I mean, those guys were writing great songs when they were 23, but they also weren't competing with video games and you know movies shoved down you know and and all this other stuff right you know they were they grew up faster so you know what they were writing was w- way more adult way more knowing you know yeah. and for us it just it, it took long i mean i you know i look back on it and i didn't really feel like i started writing good songs which good is the new suck but <laughs> till you know in the 2000s yeah that, that's when it and Mary's Frown was kind of the first tune that I wrote that I was like, you know, this actually feels like a good song. And I was right. I mean, it's the only thing that's got us a development deal. It got people in the clubs and did well. Yeah, I think the biggest change that I saw in you because you you were always kind of that main focal point in terms of keeping things running, keeping things moving forward you know, listening to feedback, following up on feedback. You were always the, uh, dare I say, the responsible one in the band. The babysitter slash psychologist. Yeah. I mean, you were kind of that person. And I think the biggest change that I saw, and I didn't, I wasn't there from the early 90s up through the 2000s. I was just not there. But the biggest change I think I saw from that one period of absence is that songwriting became much more important to you and much more kind of a focal point as opposed to like a band or a, you know, just playing bass or any of that stuff. It became more about the songs and the songwriting and things like that. That became... Look, it's it's a natural progression. Yeah. Because... Once I got to a certain age and I looked back, I'm like, okay, what did I love about those bands? What I love. And at the end of the day, it always came down to the songs. You know, Van Halen was, I guess, if you want to say lucky enough for those four guys to get in a room, that is like lightning striking. I mean, it's a miracle that it ever happened. And so for me, I was like getting in a room with three or four other guys and that happening is a long shot but what i can do is focus on the songs because at the end of the day if you don't have that nobody cares right and that kind of started me my own personal thing of of, of moving forward on that yeah i felt like i had something i feel like i had something to say right and it was real so i sat down and talked to different writers that had had success and, and that i could find and one of them was like okay i want you to write a hundred songs and when you get to 100 songs, I want you to let people hear them and, you know, be like a demo acoustic or something. Right. Pick the five that translate the most and then go back to your people again and go and get it down to two. Yep. Once you get down to two, throw every one of those songs away and write 100 more. And then you'll know. If Who you, told you that? Who? He's a, a, a Nashville writer. Okay. All right. But, you know, but it made a lot of sense because right. the fact of the matter is it is a craft. Some people are more, it comes to them naturally. You know, that was the one thing in all the bands, Big Trouble and everything up till that. We got Mary's Frown when, in Star Yard. 
because we got lucky. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. If you listen to anything else around that time, Big Trouble, there's some, there's some cool stuff there. Right. But it was never developed. It was never produced. Right. And you got to understand a lot of those bands at the time. I mean, God only knows what Guns N' Roses would have. Uh, well, that's going a little far, but some of the other bands. Had you heard the demos of the songs that eventually made those records, you'd be like, oh, my God. Right. You know what I mean? Somebody they release them now on bonus uh, oh, yeah. releases. And some are great, and right. some are just plain. Um, some of the Kiss demos I've heard are just horrific. Well, there's stuff we've heard. We talk about this, myself and a lot of my other friends. We talk about stuff all the time where we're like, why did this song not make this album and this song did? God, this song's fucking awful and it's on the record. This song that's a demo stuck in a box somewhere should have been on the album. You just, you never... Because you never know. You know, it's just kind of like the producer, you know, okay, did the producer do too much coke that day or, you know. <laughs> or, you know, or they, you know, they wanted to get some work for some of their session friends. So they picked a tune that it would take session guys to right. come in so their friends could get paid. Who knows? It's a miracle that anything ever gets done. That's why it's a business. Right. And that is what amazes me now is a lot of the people that I, you know, are still around still don't understand that and and so you at some point you have to go okay wait what are people looking for what do they want you have to think more outside than i'm just an artist everybody thinks they're john lennon in fact for a little while me and a group of guys we knew an artist he ended up getting a record deal in nashville mm-hmm. and he didn't want nashville players around him. he was a country artist right nashville country and he didn't want session guys so we came up and played for the label. We never played that stuff, and I hate that stuff. I still right. hate it. Right. But played for the label because the money was good. Right. And the next week we were out. We started touring for the next two years. Right. And knew nothing about Nashville, nothing about the hierarchy of writing and all this type of stuff. But this is what I did learn after being out with opening for Trace Atkins and Dwight Yoakam and uh, you know Keith Urban a few times. Uh, we did. A lot, a lot of dates with a guy with the real Trace Atkins. And what I learned from hearing all these people write and doing all these things is most of them, most of the writers wanted to be Tom Petty. Yeah. But they just couldn't. And for whatever reason. And so sitting in a room and for two hours debating one line, trying to be the most clever, that works for some people. It didn't work for me. Right. And so, you know, that was also a lesson in songwriting. What. You know, I knew I just couldn't do that. I would never feel good about it. Uh-huh. And, and the songs reflected that. Right. And so, you know, that's you, you learn by doing those things. I had uh-huh. to th- I had to throw it out there um, and do it. But I will say coming back from that, that was the most focus I ever was, you know, as it pertains to writing and what, you know, what I felt like was is the best thing that I could do. Right. And uh, that's what turned into the villains. Right. Now, so let's talk about the villains a little bit, because this is probably where your biggest chunk of success has happened, right? With oh, the yeah. villains. So yeah. the villains, are you aware there's a punk band out there called the villains? There's a lot of different bands called the villains, but there's only one that owns the copyright to the name, and that's me. Okay. And it was hard fought. Because <laughs> sometimes I'll get Bainstown announcements that the villains are playing, and it'll be like the punk band from yeah. New York or something. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, sometimes you have to do the cease and desist letters, and yeah. sometimes you know, you know, it just depends on what it so, is. So let's talk about the villains because we're at that period of time, and mm-hmm. the villains for me, I'll just kind of explain to my audience. The villains 
are a major label band. Mm-hmm. They've had three records out now. Uh, right? Actually, four. Four. Yeah. Okay, that's right. The fourth one just came out not too long ago. Yeah, uh, last year. Yeah. yeah, okay. In my eyes, I mean, it's changed a little bit from album to album, but I think a lot of it reminds me of sort of maybe in the same vein of Tom Petty or the Eagles. It's it's in that it's very vocal, very harmonized yeah. pop. ELO. Yeah, yeah, not those kind of luscious like um yeah. uh you know the Jeff Lynn production. He has a certain production, but yeah, yeah, he does. <laughs> but yeah, I mean along those lines, very right. vocal, um very uh just rock and, I mean it is rock and roll. I don't know if it's guitar driven rock and roll, but it's definitely rock and roll. It, it depends on the song. That was the one thing coming coming with the villains. Yeah. If I may. Yeah, jump please. In. So coming out of the country act, that band We'd really, we, there was something that we had created because, I mean, we were going out and playing with bands, opening for bands that had 13 members. We were a four piece with a front man. Mm-hmm. And uh, these session guys, and they, they were like, God, you guys are awesome, man. It's unbelievable. And so when that kind of played its course out, every label that they tried to sell this artist off to would come and see us. And they'd go, We love the band, but we just don't know where, where it's going with the artist. Right. And I was like, okay, we've we've created something here because I've never gotten that kind of feedback from anything like that. So came back to Atlanta from Nashville, and I started riding with uh, Peter Stroud, who's uh, the band leader in Cheryl Crow's band. Mm-hmm. Known him for years. You know, you've known him for years. You worked with he, him back in the day. Yeah, he's one of the first people. I saw um, him the other night at Priest and Purple, as a yep. matter of fact. Yeah, man, he is old school, and yep. he's in the perfect environment. So he's been with Cheryl Crow now for 20 years. But a strange fact. So real, real no, quick, just to interrupt. So yeah. this is an interesting, this is a small world fact, and our listeners will, will know that's why I bring this up. But, but Peter, I guess nephew I think it's his nephew his nephew is Christopher Williams who is the drummer in Accept mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Christopher lives in Nashville and Christopher's been on our show before and is just he's super cool guy super nice guy um, but that's that's just part of the really strange small world thing because I mean I didn't meet Christopher until I got into podcasting and made friends in Nashville and here. Peter and I have known each other since I moved to Atlanta. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so just kind of a weird, like small world type thing. So sorry, no, I no, had to interject that. No, but. no, yeah, no. And, and you're, you're right; it is a small world. And it's funny because I, you know, I started writing with him when he had in breaks from his touring because he was also doing Steve, uh, the Stevie Nicks tour at the time and Don Henley solo stuff. We started writing, and I used the guys that are in the villain, what became the villains, to do the demos. But this was mostly for my songwriting. That's, you know, and so I got a meeting with the president at ASCAP. That's a songwriting society in Nashville and went up and had a meeting, played the songs. He's like, man, this stuff is really, really good. Really good. He's like, uh, who do you think's going to do it? I was like, well, you know, it's in the vein of, uh, you know, Patty and Cheryl Crow and all. He's like, they write their own tunes. If you want to do this kind of music, you're going to have to have a band. And I was like, oh, God, I don't want to do another band. And so anyway, I started thinking about it and the demos got out there and Peter spread it around too and ended up getting a record deal offer. And um, at that time, it was uh, the label Sister Hazel was on. So we put out the first record, just another Saturday night in 2010 and took a couple of singles to to radio and did pretty, uh, 
okay. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't gangbusters, but there was something there. And what's even funnier is after that record kind of played its course, I was writing again with Peter and he's like, oh man, I'm leaving to go to LA tomorrow. And I was like, oh yeah, for what? He's like, the demos for the new Don Henley record. Now this was 2012. That Don Henley record just came out a year ago. Yeah. That's any indication of how long records take to make. Right. If you have the budget to do it. Right. And uh, I was like, oh, that's cool. Who's producing that record? And he was like, Stan Lynch from The Heartbreakers. I was like, oh, my God. I'd love to have either him or uh, Mike Campbell produce a villain's record. And Peter's like, yeah, it would be cool. And, you know. <laughs> and Stan Lynch was the drummer. It was the drummer. In the Heartbreakers, yeah, right? And he, they, once they did, uh, Mary Jane's last dance, he basically put the sticks down and quit the band. And he's been working for Don Henley ever since. Has he? Oh yeah. What is he playing with Don Henley? No, no. It, he's, he's a producer. He okay. co-produced, uh, the Eagles comeback. And then he's worked on every, he co-wrote the last worth this evening, uh, into the innocence. Okay. Always a great songwriter. And I asked him in the studio one time, just to move ahead. I said, Hey man, you write, you're such a great songwriter. Did you ever present any to Tom? And he's like, and he looked over at me, just, would you? That's all he said. To <laughs> so anyway, we, uh, with Peter, and he went out and did those demos. And then I got a call a couple of weeks later. And it's like, hey, is this Dan? Yeah. It's Lynch. <laughs> is that so, what he says? Yeah, this, is Lynch? this is Lynch. <laughs> it's like I uh, listen to uh, your, your record, and I hear you want to make a new one. I think I, I'd like to take a look at doing it with you. I was like, Peter, are you fucking with me, man? I didn't. <laughs> I thought it was Peter. And so long story short. Stan was brought on board for uh, our second record, which became Velocity. Right. And we recorded in Nashville at the uh, Sound Emporium, the famous B-Room, drum room. And all. Coincidentally enough, we went in to do it, and he was also working on that new Don Henley record. They were using three different studios in Nashville. Uh -huh. and he was over. So when they were done during the day, we would go in at a cut rate at night to make the villains record. Yeah. And co-wrote with him. I co-wrote with him a lot and on that. Which to interject here is, is in case people don't know, uh, if you're a newer or younger band or just a band on a budget, yeah. a lot of times what they'll do is they'll bring you into the studio late at night at what, mm -hmm. what Dan just said at a cut rate because the studio prices are a lot cheaper at night. Yes. So that's exactly what you did. So Well, that and the fact that to work with Stan, that's what we would have yeah. to do anyway. Okay. So it just kind of worked itself out and Peter came in. He was out doing dates with Cheryl and he came in and recorded some tracks right. and the songs were really strong and go, but working with Stan was completely different for me. Cause I said, when we were talking on the phone that day, I was like, Oh, okay. So can we look, let me, I'll, I'll talk to the label. Let me see what's, you know? And he was like, just don't worry about that. Just start sending me songs. I was like, well, we need a schedule. I don't, don't just start sending me songs. And it was brutal, brutal honesty yeah. from a rock and roll hall of famer. Who's had his nuts kicked in by, Petty and Don Henley for 30 years and toured with Bob Dylan right. with the Heartbreakers. But you know what? But it was it was good. And that's the thing I've always tried to be. So so expand on that. When you yeah. say brutal, I mean, give us a story. What, uh, what? This song sucks. I, he just uh, flat out would yeah, say that. No. Uh, and you could be excited about it. I mean, what were you thinking in the in this course? I mean, this is, you know, but fair. Yeah. But and if it was good, there was a couple of tunes that I handed over the demos and we did those as is. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I learned a lot from that. Yeah. I learned that you can be brutal 
and also honest and not everything that you do is great. That's the biggest thing. I, I And I knew going in, I'm right. like, not every song you write is going to be great. In fact, 99.9% of them are going to suck. Right. But it was also, I, I don't want to make it sound like Stan was, a, you know, an ogre or anything. He wasn't. I mean, he it was just honest. Right. And it cut through the bullshit. You, you may have thought, wow, this is great and all this type of stuff. And it's like, but are you going to argue with him about what a great song is? Right. You know, I mean, you have opinions and he was smart enough to understand when he wanted to hear something from you and when he didn't. And it was going into making a record who had recorded with producers like Jeff Lynn. Yeah. And all these guys. Damn the torpedoes. Damn the torpedoes. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just like you knew that's why you hire these guys. Right. And so we went in and made that record and Stan was real excited about it. We were all very excited about it, put it out and put out the first single from it, Rainy Day Girl, and took that to a different radio format, uh, adult contemporary, which used to be elevator music. And it ended up a top 25 tune at, at AC. And um, we couldn't believe it, you know, because we were out touring with uh, Little Feet at the time. Yeah. And it just kind of grew from there, you know. I mean, I, I remember... There were several occasions where, you know, we would be where my wife and I would be in like a subway yeah. or or, yeah. or a, uh, a gym or just, you know, hanging out, driving down the road, listening to XM to the blend or something, you know, whatever. And, and the villains would pop up with Rainy Day Girl yeah. and you would hear it. And, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd be sitting in a subway, we'd be eating a sandwich and I'd. I'd kind of get this look on my face, and she's like, "I'm like, what is this playing?" Because I recognize that. I was like, "Holy shit, it's the villains!" Yeah, yeah, you know, it's, it's <laughs> us. Yeah, that and and we started to hear more and more of those stories. Yeah. So we knew the record yeah. had affected that, and uh, and built from there. But it, and you know, look, the villains were older guys, and we play rock music right right and so to be able to go in and compete nowadays rock radio doesn't really exist not anymore. really and so classic rock radio yeah, classic rock radio and they'll play a food fighters tune here yeah. and there and whatever but the point is that we were going in there and you know we're not competing locally anymore you're competing against at radio competing for space right with artists like taylor swift and Demi Lovato, yeah. and Train, yeah. and uh, you know, and that's an education in itself because that's when you really start to understand what this business is all about, and especially when you're able to, to you know, to kind of compete in it. You right. Know? So we had found at least our format or, or where we could go, and the reach just got. When they start playing you on Sirius, that's you know, you know, it's like okay, and um put out another single from that record, then went to the next record. And the first single off a uh, little something for the pain was a song called the first. And that ended up being our first top 20 uh, mm -hmm. adult contemporary single. So and, you built a little bit off of velocity and then you went into the second record and you had a little foundation. Yeah. Built we, and, we, we, we finally built a platform. The first right. record had introduced us. Yep. Velocity started putting the bricks down yeah and then uh and a lot of people at that time were like man you guys should go country well i mean you guys always sort of towed the line because i mean if you listen to a lot of the earlier eagles stuff and even some of the petty stuff right he sort of towed the line between rock and roll and country i mean there were elements of country for yeah. sure in both those musics so i think probably 
um, you guys could have gone. Uh, oh, we absolutely could have gone country, you know, and and yeah, that was where a lot of the money uh, probably was at the time. So it's, I mean, I could absolutely. Well, I mean, you're talking about that. 2013, so five years ago. Yeah, and that's right when uh oh god, they're from Atlanta, man. We know this guy. I can't think of his name. Zach Brown. Zach Brown. And they just started having big success. So everybody was like, man, throw a banjo on this thing and let's go. But I knew if we did that, that it would have, we'd have ended up looking like clowns. And we would have because we had to stay true to what we were doing. Right. Or at least, you know, the vision of it. Right. And that's what we've done till this day. You know, uh, we've put out the fourth record up to this point, three top 20s, three top 25s. Right. And, um, you know, still working, still moving forward. Yeah, and for anybody that wonders what this what this transitions into is is not a whole lot um, money wise. I mean, you're still no. just plugging away at things, trying to build followings, trying to yep. you know you can't get out on the road. It's catch twenty two. You got to pay to get out on the road. You can't pay to get out of the road if you don't have any money. Right. So it's it's the same shit that we hear over and over again with struggling bands, and yeah. it's and it's a shame because you can have these you know top 25 uh ac songs that are on the charts that are on the radio but it's not transitioning into it doesn't transition into big money because you have to understand that the artists you're competing with in that one format they're at four other formats too and so you know we're getting outspent you know four or five to one while it's a major it's also a boutique label and um and, you know, I mean, nobody's lining up to hand 40-year-old guys to play Explain what boutique label it's is. It's smaller. It's under, the, it's under the Universal Music Yeah, so you've brand. got a big distributor like Universal, yeah. but this label is just um, one of its sort of subsidiaries, yeah, subsidiary. if, you, if you will. If you get to a certain amount of sales or a top 10 on iTunes or something like that, then that's when Universal will come in and start investing. But. That's how it works. Well, listen. So we talked about the villains. Let's play something for people. Let's look. Yeah, since this is growing up rock, yeah, it might be good if we played rock, like real rock. Yeah, and uh, wrote this tune with the guy. His name's Charlie Midnight, and he wrote this "Living in America" for James Brown. Monsters from Brooklyn. Old guy. Hey, man. You know he lives in L.A. And um, it's funny because all these. West Coast riders, anytime I ride with them, they're always like, let's ride about like, you know, the country and all this type of <laughs> stuff. It's like they're fascinated by it or something. But anyway, so wrote this with him and it's uh, it's off the third record, a little something for the pain. It's called Daddy's Got a Shotgun.
Daddy's got a shotgun. That's a little bit of rock and roll for you. I mean, your your records have elements of what you just heard with Daddy's got a shotgun. You've got some power pop elements, mm-hmm. you know, like I said before, some petty influences, some eagle influence. I mean, they're good, solid rock and roll records. I mean, the songwriting is good on them. I enjoy them. Probably my favorite out of all of them is probably Velocity. That's Mm -hmm. the one me and my wife are drawn to a little bit. I really enjoy the songs on that record, but there's good material on everything, including, uh, you know, Another Saturday Night, which was the first one. Right. Even up to the, look, this is the thing with the villains, that this is the one thing about being on a boutique. What we go by is is the song working i don't care what style it is if it's rock if it's a ballad if it's kind of countryish or americana we go what is the 12 best tunes what are we feeling what's everybody else feeling and that's what we put down because we can yeah you know and so that's the beauty of it. it it's also hard to market it but at the same time so like you said it's even up to this last record the our latest record yeah one more time. It's funny because the title track off that, the guy that, that mixed it, it's great, great engineer. And he was like, holy smokes, man, you managed to do like a prog rock pop masterpiece in like three and a half minutes. And 
that's such a cool thing to hear because there was no time restriction on. There was no, there was nobody looking over the shoulder. I produced the record and, and it was awesome. Yeah. And that records performed. That's been our best performing record. So everything continues to move up. But the, at the end of the day, the fight, like I said, the fire's got to burn and some acts like Van Halen, we always love Van Halen and their records have a consistency. Their first, their last record, they sound just as good on that record as they did on their first record and vice versa. Right. And their style is what those four people bring together. Same thing with Zeppelin, same thing with Kiss. But if they go off the rails anywhere yeah. with the song, everybody goes, oh my God. With the villains, you know, if we want to do a uh, Oompa song, we'll do it. Right. You know, I mean, if it's a great it's song. It's wide open. Right. Yeah. That's sort what of, we love about it. Sort of all over the map. All right. Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. All right. Just like a lovely and talented, beautiful Samantha. God, she's so beautiful. She said it. You guys do it. Subscribe to our podcast. We appreciate each and every one of you guys. So thank you, thank you, thank you for subscribing to the podcast. So Dan, let's circle back to Velocity and your time with Stan Lynch. Uh-huh. Do you got any good stories? Was there anything you took away from Stan? Did Stan share any uh, tidbits of uh, fun uh, with his days and petty with you guys? Oh, man. Uh, he did. Um, and I'd probably get choked if I told you any of the... Uh, Cause we're, st- I mean, uh, we're still friends. Yeah. Uh, he he's a villains fan. Just I just emailed with him uh, last week. Yeah. Um, any particular stories? You know, I will tell you this, and I don't know if your listeners will appreciate this because I know this is more of a rock, like hard rock show. Well, you know what? Here's the great thing is that is that we are guitar driven rock podcast, and we stick pretty much to that. But it doesn't mean that we don't like rock and roll in general. We branched off and did like. We did a heavier, uh, we did a heavier version of Prince yeah. for Prince's anniversary of his of his passing. I think it was earlier this year. I guess it was earlier this year. But that episode got so many downloads. People loved that episode. Yeah. The feedback that came back. So we like to think that we're a little bit open-minded. We just happen to love, Sonny and I both happen to love hard rock and metal. So that's kind of what we stick to. But I don't know about Sonny so much, but I'm a huge Petty fan. I love the Eagles. I love old school rock and roll and great songs. I always have. Yeah. I just, uh, you know, I I tend to gravitate more towards, um, you know, distorted guitars and, and things like that. But Regardless, it's a great story, it, it, no matter what genre you're in. But yep. um, I don't know if a lot of people know it, but there was uh, about two years where the Heartbreakers backed up Bob Dylan on a, a two, like literally a two year world tour. Mm-hmm. And what a lot of people and it was Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. What a lot of people don't know is Dylan, when he came in and Stan told me this, he wanted just the Heartbreakers. Uh-huh. He didn't want Tom. Yeah. He wanted that to be his band. And right. He wanted to be the petty guy, you know. And um, but somehow, some way, once Petty found out that that's what he was just like, no, 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 no. And basically drove everybody crazy until Dylan, you're like, what's he going to do? Backtalk Dylan? Right. Dylan wanted, the, you know, he want, wanted Stan and Mike Campbell and Ben Mon and, and um. 
and then eventually had mercy on Petty and said, okay, but you know, this is, but this is my band. Was this, was this pre Wilberries or? Yes. Pre Wilberries. Pre Wilberries. Yeah. So is this kind of maybe this relationship is what led to, Absolutely. Uh, to the was, Wilberries thing? Uh, well, it was definitely part, part of, it. of it. Yeah. yeah. But um, I thought that was, you would think that that would have been, you know, the number one target, but, uh, you know, Stan, I'll tell you another story. The last show after two years, he uh, they were playing Wembley. And he said two magic things happened that night. After sound check, I looked over and I saw Ringo Starr and his wife standing on the side of the stage and started getting, you know, of course, Ringo was a big hero. Yeah. And he hadn't met him yet. And so somebody goes, let me introduce you. And he said so he walked up to Ringo and he, he wanted to say, like, oh, man, you're the greatest. Infant. What ended up coming out was Ringo drums love like he couldn't get the words out and he said ringo walked up to him put his arms around him and, go, and pat him on the back and just said i know because I know. <laughs> he's heard it before <laughs> yeah 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 he's heard it. But from every drummer in the world yeah and then he said that night at wembley the place it's sold out they're playing you know like a rolling stone or whatever and all of a sudden he said he's playing and he looked over at the set list and the enormity of those songs with that artist, it, it, it hit him all of a sudden. And he literally started crying. And it stands not a crier. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, the, the stories, those guys were like full, it's full contact rock and roll. Yeah. And, um, and he just said, he just started crying. And then after the gig, Bob was like, Hey man, you okay? And he's like, yeah, I just, it just hit me all of a sudden. Uh, that we're playing these classic songs. Yeah, and history. It's you. And rock it's, and this is history. Actual rock and roll and history. Dylan's like, calm down. He just told him to calm down. Yeah. That was the end of it. <laughs> so that, that's my stand stories without getting into the. Uh, in trouble. In trouble. Yeah. 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 That's cool, man. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah I mean, I can only fathom, uh, you know, hearing and taking in some of the stories, you know, because they are rock and roll historical pieces right oh, yeah. you know and so uh just thinking about stuff like that is pretty cool so we come full circle the yes. villains thing is happening you've got uh the latest record out but now what are you up to because you've got something new going down you've been playing a lot of acoustic gigs lately yeah. what's happening with you well i mean we we had uh our third top 20 off this last villains record yeah. off one more time and uh over the summer and I'd been co-writing with a with an arranger in L.A. named uh, Richard Niles, and he challenged me to come up with sort of a provocative lyric of some kind and, and writing for the villains. I mean, basically everything can be considered for that, no matter who the artist is. And uh, came up with this tune, and it just the rock of it just felt right. And um, he's like, "Why don't you just sing it?" So I did, and it. We were like, wow, this is cool. You know, I mean, it just it, it, it just felt right. And, you know, I've had a lot of people, hey, are you ever going to put out, a, you know, a solo record or anything like that? And I've always been a band guy. You know me. I mean, you've known each other for years. But then I was like, you know what? Let me go and, and, and check some things out. So I went and uh, picked up the acoustic guitar, learned some of the villain stuff, acoustic, and uh, started playing. And uh, it felt good. And so, you know, I've done dates now in New York and West Palm Beach, and Miami, and got more coming up in Nashville and Atlanta. But this was the tune that kind of set that off. It's part of what will be an EP in the first of 2019. 
Right. So I've heard this song and it's a little bit more guitar driven than some of the other stuff. Uh, I wouldn't call it hard rock. I would actually call it probably power pop if I had to describe it to somebody. You'd be the kids out there on Spotify. Yeah. I've heard everything from this sounds like this is Bon Jovi. This is uh, any every. What do you think it is? Well, you think power pop's a good uh, genre. I think for it? absolutely it yeah. is. I think it is that. It, it, we were coming from a from a Stones like early Bowie, Kiss yeah. classic Kiss kind of thing. That's what we were shooting for. Sound wise, sound yeah. wise. But yep. What in in but it's a pop tune, pop rock. So the name of the song, and then tell us a little bit about this song because just the fact that this song has the word gay yeah. in the title is going to spark a bunch of controversy and spark a bunch of people that bitch and moan before they even understand what the song is about. So. Yeah. So the name of the song is Wish I Was Gay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, you know, of course, it, don't let the, the provocative title fool you. It's, yep. it's actually not about the gay experience. I mean, I, you know, I have gay friends and, uh, you know, a lot of us do. And what it's about is seeing life on the other side of the fence and thinking, wondering, would that be better? Right. You know, than what? And uh, it never is you you're, you carry your problems with you over the fence too uh-huh. and so anyway the character in the story is having a lot of trouble with his girlfriend and they're fighting a lot and their neighbors next door uh, is a gay couple uh-huh. and um a couple of friends of mine in real life i use their names jack and geo uh-huh. and um and goes man you know I, they're always they always seem happy they're always you know down with each other and everything and you know, maybe life would be better that way i wonder and so anyway, it's the story of that. And he learns the hard way at the end that this it's not as simple as just wanting that. And they have their own problems. We right. all have problems. Yeah. But that's what the song is about. It's not about the gay experience. That's that word. It's a flashpoint word. Yeah, of course. And, you know, it's definitely a head turner. Right. And um, but you know what? At the end of the day with me, like we've talked about, it's about the songs. If the song wasn't great, yep. I wouldn't waste my time. And. Could we have changed the title? Yeah, but no. But I don't. I don't play. That. I don't do that. And so well, we put it together and put it out and done surprisingly well. I played it live at acoustic. Yeah, in my acoustic shows, and it always gets a reaction. I can tell you. So yeah, it's you can find it everywhere. It's Spotify, iTunes, Dan Call. Wish I was gay. Let's listen to it now. Plugged in and complete. Here is Wish I Was Gay. Dan Call.
So that's one catchy fucking tune, man. Thanks, brother. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, song title, not song title, song content. That I, I've never been me myself. I've never really been a deep lyric person. Right. That's just not me. I go usually. I listen first, uh, and, and instead of interpreting lyrics, I'll listen. And if I like the guitar. Then I'll go to the melody and yeah. and that you dissect song, it. Yeah, that song has some great melodies in it. Very catchy shit. So thanks. Brother. I like it, man. Hopefully, uh, other folks will dig it as well. A lot as well. You know, it's gotten quite a few streams on Spotify. It's sold well and and it goes over well live. And you know, the fact of the matter is, at the end of the day, you know, the hook's big. Are you feeling it or are you not? Yeah. And if you're not, it's cool. You know, the funny part about it is there used to be a time when music was dangerous, you know, when you when something provocative was. And now a lot of the times, you know, the most dangerous thing you see is when an artist is a Hillary Clinton supporter or something like that. You know, that's oh, my God. Yeah. Or or whatever. And I, you know, I don't want to play that way. I just want to do what I do. And if it works, it works, man. Awesome. All right. It's time for. It's time for your historic moment on Growing Up Rock. 
All right, so in my partner Sonny Pooney's absence, I am all about the historic moment. And since Dan, our guest of honor here, is such a huge Kiss fan, you heard him talk about rock and roll over being the first tour that he saw. Mm-hmm. Dan, I'm going to let you do the honors and pick a fantastic historic moment. What Kiss song do you want to hear, dude? Oh, my gosh. Pick whatever you want, oh, Wow. Holy smokes. Let as me long see. As it's here. not Beth. No, it's definitely not that. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you that a song that I always wish I'd seen live, and I, I think they just recently started doing Flaming Youth off Destroyer. Flaming Youth off of Destroyer. They have been doing that live, I think, lately. Yep. That and Sweet Pain, yep. I think they've also been doing lately. So what do you make of the end of the road tour? You know, they're calling it quits after this uh, next, what, three-year tour or whatever they're getting ready to if do. They, if they live through it. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I think this time they mean it. I don't see what the upside is past this. Nah, I don't. Um, and, you know, the thing about Kiss is that this whole thing could eventually – 
turn into a Vegas act where it's young guys coming in or girls. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Doing, you know, that's what they've created. So yeah. it, it's, nothing's going to die. I mean, it's not like you're not going to be able to go see Paul Stanley solo somewhere, Gene Simmons. The biggest question everybody's got is, will they bring back the ace? They can't. Peter Chris's arthritis is so bad. I mean, yeah. he could barely hit the drums in the reunion tour. I mean, right. he literally can't play. Yeah. But you know what? I'll go. I definitely will go. And people are bitching and moaning, saying that it's it's a tough sell because Paul just can't sing anymore. Yeah, you know. And I saw uh, what were they on the other night? Uh, America's Got Talent. Yeah, they? yeah. And um, you know, he. I thought he sounded good. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I. But the bottom line is, okay, maybe he can't do what he used to do, but out of reverence. For what they created, if you're a Kiss fan, you're going to go. Yeah. I don't care if he has laryngitis that night and Tommy Thayer's got to sing everything. Right. So it, it's more about the celebration of it for yeah. me personally. Yeah, I, I think, I, and really, I think that's how it should be yeah. approached by most of fans. Yeah. I, I agree 100%. And, you know, with I have that. the choice either to see it or not. And if you don't want to see it because you think Paul's voice is gone, then don't go. Yeah. I, I'm going. I wonder if. Paul lip synced and it sounded perfect. Would that make it okay for you? Uh, yeah, I think you'd be surprised at just how many people you're seeing that do do that and you don't know it, yeah, especially oh, these know. days. Uh, I, you know, I don't know. I don't. I think if once again, I know on the surface everybody just screamed at the at the car stereo and said no fucking way, but just fathom it for a little bit. If you're a huge kiss fan and your issue is you can't take hearing the tunes live because of paul's voice yeah. then if everything's live and the band's show is live and his in-between song banter is live but the only thing that's not live is the actual song that he's singing would that be okay to you i don't know i I'm, just I'm, I asking the question more so than saying one way or another i don't know how i feel about it you know but um I, you know just depends something on to ponder depends on how much the ticket is yeah, yeah that's, you know a, I mean? that's a big question so right? it's look once again it's a personal choice absolutely if you know that's happening and you and you're okay with that and you're just wanting to go celebrate yep. a band then, then then do it spend the money if you don't think that's worth it then don't do yeah. it you, you have a choice that's it celebration of kiss all right so dan is there anything that you want to tell the listeners can you want to give out your information as to where they can find villains music dan call music any of that stuff do you have a website absolutely et cetera, et cetera? absolutely and, and look you know a lot of people complain about you know rock uh there's still great rock music being played out there and i continue to carry the flag and would love to have you the website's dancallmusic.com um you can please follow me on spotify like i said it's just the one song right now i wish i was gay but there's more coming uh you can also follow my band the villains at thevillainsband.com on both those websites there's links to all the socials and everything else send me a message whatever i'd love to hear from you love to talk to you and we'll uh, put all the shit in the show notes as well yeah really it'll be cool awesome all right dan We'll wrap this thing up. It's been a long conversation. You've been an awesome fill-in for my co-host, Mr. Sonny Hollywood Pooney. 
And I've enjoyed catching up with you, man. Yeah, Some of this man. old school catch up. Hey, dude, it always feels good. Definitely. So, you know, it's time. We have a tradition here at Growing Up Rock. And our tradition is that we close out the episode with a little shuffle, rattle, and roll. Since we all have so much music on our phones these days, we just like to pull up everything that we have with all the songs that we have and push shuffle and whatever plays, plays. So we will talk to everybody next week. It's time for a little shuffle, rattle, and roll. See ya. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.